Welcome to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, the Daniel Anderl Judicial Security and Privacy Act. Jennifer Rogers, former federal prosecutor and lecturer in law at Columbia Law School, talks with Christopher Piak and Yesenia Vascones, co-chairs of the City Bar's Task Force for the Independence of Lawyers and Judges, and Matthew Schaefer, chair of the City Bar Communications and Media Law Committee. They discuss the contents of the Daniel Anderold Judicial Security and Privacy Act and the challenges it might face, and answer the question, how will this legislation protect judges, and how might it inhibit the work of journalists? Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Here's Jennifer Rogers. Welcome, everyone. My name is Jennifer Rogers. I'm a former federal prosecutor, and I currently teach at NYU Law School in the government ethics public corruption field. Today, we're talking about a piece of legislation working its way through Congress. It's called the Daniel Anderl Act, and I have three terrific guests here to help us dissect and discuss this bill. But first, I want to say thanks to the folks at the New York City Bar Association for sponsoring this, for providing the technical support, and for bringing it all together. Um, And I also want to say something else about the City Bar. You know, it's a fascinating group of lawyers and really diverse when it comes to the kinds of law practiced by lawyers in the association and the diversity of viewpoints. And I think we're going to see that today because we've assembled some guests who see this bill a little bit differently based on the areas in which they practice. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, So I'm going to introduce my guests and talk for just a second about the bill, and then we will be ready to go. So uh, I have joining me today uh, three people. First, we have Chris Piak. Chris is at the law firm of Dunnington, Bartolo, and Miller, and he's one of the co-chairs of the Task Force for the Independence of Lawyers and Judges at the City Bar. Uh, He is joined by his uh, other co-chair of the Task Force for the Independence of Lawyers and Judges, Jesenia Vescones, and she is a lawyer at the Crum and Forster firm. Finally, we have Matt Schaefer joining us. Matt is the Assistant General Counsel of Viacom CBS. He teaches media law at Fordham, and he's the chair of the City Bar's Communications and Media Law uh, Committee. So let me say hi to each of them. First, welcome, Chris. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Jesenia, glad to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. And finally, Matt, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. And sorry if you hear my dog in the background. He's I, I hear that he started barking right right when we sat down to do this. And I should just add quickly, uh, as far as a disclosure matter, um, that I'm here to speak on behalf of on behalf of myself and neither Fordham nor uh, Viacom CPS. Great. And and while we're on the subject of dogs, I have a dog scurrying around here as well. So <laughs> I apologize in advance for for any any barking that we wait here, is this the the Zoom era of uh, COVID, right? Uh, all these at home noises we're not used to. Um, so so let's turn to this bill, um, Jasenia. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about the bill? Well, first, actually, I guess I was going to to in broad strokes say how it was inspired. So let me do that first. So. The, the, the bill is named for Daniel Anderl, and he was the 20-year-old son of a New Jersey federal district court judge named Esther Salas, uh, and she had a, a litigant in her court who went to her home and shot her husband and her son. He killed her 20-year-old son and severely injured her husband. And so that was 
um, at least one of the inspirations for this bill, this notion of, of judge information being too easy to get uh, by people who might wish to harm judges, the notion that they need to be free of that sort of threat in order to administer justice fairly and freely. Um, so, Jacenia, tell us a little bit more about uh, the purpose of the bill and just beyond the obvious, you know, and, and what is the problem that this bill is trying to solve? Yeah, and I think you you hit the nail on the head in terms of this is really trying to find a way to you know, beef up both security and also protections to the public information available. So security meaning things like the U.S. Marshal's Office is giving them more resources, more equipment. But then how do we also protect this publicly available information, PII, um, from getting on the wrong, into the wrong hands and being used to threaten and attack judges? You know, you mentioned the unfortunate um, events involving Judge Solis's son, which prompted this Bill, you know, apart from what he physically did, he also had public dossiers on other judges, on the New York Chief Justice uh, Janet DeFiori. He also had a public dossier which included things like favored restaurants of the public of the Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. So the amount of information he was able to gather was really staggering and concerning. Um, you know, but these concerns really predate this uh, this um, issue right now. You know. The last security update actually occurred 15 years ago following another attack on a federal judge, on Judge Joan Lefko, um, where similarly there was a disgruntled plaintiff who found her address and she wasn't home at the time, but he ended up killing her husband and her mother. And she became very similarly an advocate for beefing up security issues um, when it comes to judges. So that was the last security update. And since then, we've seen really a transformation in the available information online and how it is disclosed and used. And so I think a lot of it really is, how do we now in this new landscape really try to protect this publicly available information? And this is just, it feels at least for someone like me as a another step in trying to beef up security apart from what we can all agree on, which is um, you know, equipment and more marshals and more capabilities to discover, you know, threats and investigate threats. Um, just in terms of statistics, to give you a little bit of sense, you know, the last five years, there have been an increase in threats against judges by 400%. You know, there were more than 4,000 in 2020. As of June 2021, which is the last statistic I could find, the threats were over 1,200 in the last six, in those first six months. Um, and the threats are everything from, you know, threatening to kill judges, having their information, their addresses publicized. There have been um, drive-by shootings at courthouses in 2020 and 2021. So these threats have really been increasing over the last few years. Um, and part of it is thanks to the polarization of the country has sort of increased these threats. And also, like I've been mentioning, you know, the available information has just become a lot more easily accessible and easily used for, for nefarious purposes. Um, and just the last thing I want to mention before we jump in further into the bill well, is really the U.S. Marshal's Office report that they published in June 2021. And that really details the many, many concerns they themselves have. The Marshal's Office is the one in charge of protecting the federal judges and the court officials nationwide. There's 2,700 federal judges and attorney generals. There's over 30,000 court officials. They just don't have the resources right now to investigate, uh, to investigate threats, to um, 
try and protect the available information, their own home security program, which is voluntary for judges, they fully admit does not have the resources and equipment that like a normal commercially available home security system would have. So I guess this bill is really trying to address that we need to beef up the physical security, but we also need to find a way to make it harder to get the information and help U.S. Marshals in their job and doing so as well. Um, yeah. And and if I can just tack on to what Jasenia was saying, you know, just to, just to add on a, a little bit more context, that same um, U, uh, DOJ report on the U.S. Marshals noted that of judges that were actively being protected by the Marshal Service at that time, they saw an 89% increase in what they classify as, quote, security incidents, inappropriate, inappropriate communications, and threats which are made, which were being made to the U.S. Marshal Service protected persons at risk, um, and I'll also throw in that there was the the National Judicial College polled 572 judges back in 2020, and nearly 85 percent of the judges polled stated that they that they felt that protections for them and their families were inadequate. So this is a major issue. Yeah, that's those statistics are really startling. You, you have to think they've are only getting even worse, right? Given where we are in the country. It doesn't seem like we're headed for better days in that sense anytime soon. Um, well, Chris, thanks for that um, add-on. Why don't you talk a little bit now about what the bill does? So we have this bill. We have a clear problem it's trying to solve. What does the bill say? What, is, what does it do? Sure. So at, at heart, um, at its heart, the, the bill does two major things. One, it protects, uh, as Jasenia said, personally identifiable information. Uh, and it also protects uh, and 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 adds for greater uh, security. Um, so the bill, I mean, so let's talk about, I guess, the protections first. So the categories of information that the bill is enumerating that's that's going to be protected for judges. We're talking about home addresses, phone numbers, personal email, social security numbers, and driver's license numbers, bank account information, license plate numbers, um, the identification of children under the age of eighteen. Uh, judges' full date of birth, uh, the name and address of employers, schools, or daycares of immediate family members. So those, you know, kind of broken down, they're a little bit broader in the actual text of the bill. Um, and, and, you know, that. Uh, but these are the general categories of information that's, that they're trying to protect. Um, in addition, the bill recognizes that, you know, the, that the federal government can't do it alone. The U.S. Marshal Service can't do it alone. So it establishes a grant program for state and local governments who might not have the resources to be able to, uh, you know, a- implement this bill effectively. So it's designed to give money so that state and local governments can beef up their own ability to help protect judges. Um, the next thing it does is it pro- prohibits data brokers from selling, licensing, or trading confidential information. It also increases training for judges, senior judges, retired judges, and their family uh, to make them, one, more aware about things like social media and what what can be the dangers of that, um, and two, to be able to make them more aware about you know, their own safety and security and, and how to um, take safety steps. And then the final thing it does, um, which Jasenia alluded to, is that it expands the capabilities of the the protection for the U.S. Um, the protections that the U.S. Marshals Service is supposed to be affording to judges. It helps to um, uh, it, it's supposed to help them with funding and increase their funding. Um, 
I think one of the the major things I'm just going to point out, uh, as Jasenia said, the U.S. Marshal Service is currently woefully inadequate at, at doing its job of protecting judges and members of the judiciary. Um, I'm just going to quote from that DOJ report here. Um, this was an issue that was identified back in 2018. Uh, and it's being addressed now. And in the 2018 strategic plan um, the, the, for the U.S. Marshal Services, they stated that the threat actors' abilities outpace the U.S. Marshal Service threat detection capabilities, which forces the agency into a reactionary posture that relies on threats being reported to the OPI by the recipient, which creates vulnerabilities that put USMS protected persons at risk. So this is people who are already availing themselves of current, um, you know, of the protections of the U.S. Marshal Service. Right. Well, that all sounds pretty good, frankly. It almost makes me want to uh, contact my friendly senator to apply to be a federal judge. I mean, those those protections sound sound uh, pretty strong and, frankly, sound pretty warranted. So, so let's hear about the other side of this a little bit. Um, you know, I want to ask about who's impacted by this bill, other than, of course, the federal judges and their family who, who will get extra protection and the marshal service will get some resources to do their jobs. But Who's on the other side of this? What are what are the problems with this bill in terms of people affected? So I'm going to go to you, Matt, um, our media lawyer, to talk about whether there are implications for news gathering and for journalists. Sure. Thanks, Jennifer. So I, I think that the short answer is yes, there are implications for the news media and journalists and, and by extension, the public as well, um, including um, various nonprofits whose job it is to monitor uh, transparency in the judiciary. I think a, uh, the Wall Street Journal had an article uh, that it published uh, several months ago now, but it kind of lays bare what's at stake is from a transparency perspective. Uh, and the, the journal reported that 131 federal judges broke the law, by, broke the uh, conflict of interest law by hearing cases where they had a financial interest. Uh, and it came to a total of 685 cases where judges failed to recuse themselves because they had a financial interest in those cases. Um, and in two thirds of those cases where they failed to recuse themselves, they ruled in favor of uh, the party that they had an interest in. And we can only tell those stories. The media can only tell those stories if it has access to certain information. And so I think that's the first impact is that the law limits access to certain classes of information, uh, specifically and most pointedly uh, kinds of information that would reveal potential conflicts of interest, whether it's land holdings or perhaps debts or, or what have you or other financial information. Uh, it has a, two other impacts too, at least two other impacts. The, other, the second being that it has a prohibition on the disclosure of this covered information. Now, to be sure, there is a carve-out that uh, exempts reporting by the news media on matters of public interest, and we can talk about that later. Uh, and it also has a, a third impact, which is the erasure provision, where it essentially says within 72 hours, uh, after being notified by an individual who's protected by the statute, uh, the entity that is currently displaying or disclosing the covered information would have to remove that information. And so um, 
you know, again, that has a carve out, uh, a public interest news media carve out, but it would seem to me uh, that even with that carve out, we will see if this law goes into effect, uh, you know, the, the, the either narrowness or expansiveness of that carve out tested. So, so this notion of conflicts of interest of judges and the media not being able to probe those is really important because um, it's very hard to it's very hard to to find those things, right? And even even government offices that that do ethics and conflicts, you know, that that's what they do often rely, frankly, upon investigative journalists to reveal some of these things. I mean, honestly, having worked in the corruption field, I know that sometimes your cases start by looking at the newspaper. Um, so, you know, good government really relies on reporters to to reveal some of those things. So it sounds like, Matt, I mean, is, is that what you're saying, that, that the covered information here covers enough financial information of judges that you think it would it would inhibit the work of investigative journalists like this? I think that's right. And I, I just to do, well, I'll say two things on that point. I mean, the first is that um, in Chief Justice Roberts' end of the year report, uh, he actually highlighted, to your point, Jennifer, about the government and kind of relying on the news media to explain when things are, are not going as they should. He, he wrote at length about this Wall Street Journal reporting and, and highlighted that this was, in fact, a problem and said that, um, you know, he provides some reasons why this wasn't as bad as one might otherwise think, but added that it it was not an excuse and that the judiciary is duty bound to strive for 100% compliance because public trust is essential, not incidental to our function. Uh, so to give an example of how for how the news media might be prohibited from doing the kind of reporting it has been doing in any event, I mean, there was reporting down I believe it was in Louisiana about a judge who was overseeing a case relating to mineral rights. And in fact, he had an interest in the, the real property that was related to the mineral rights. Uh, and perhaps a, to go to an example that's more familiar to folks during the uh, confirmation hearings of uh, Justice Kavanaugh, there was quite a lot of information being circulated publicly relating to uh, Justice Kavanaugh's credit card debt one of the categories in uh, the statute or one of the categories of information that's considered covered information is uh, information relating uh, relating to a judge's credit. And so, you know, you can query whether were this statute in force in the future and were there another, you know, whether a, a Supreme Court justice or a lower court judge, whether um, this would prevent exactly that kind of reporting. Interesting. Okay. Um, so let's, let's get a little bit of update on where the bill stands. What's the current status? What are its chances of being signed into law? Chris, can you update us on, on how this is looking? Sure. As as yeah. tell, I mean, you never know how the sausage is made, but let's, let's, let's try to see what we can learn. Sure. So, you know, first things first, I think that one thing that I, I, I can't, um, 
can't overstate is the fact that that there's a lot of support for this bill amongst professional groups and and people who are really advocating for it. Um, the ABA has come out in favor of it. The um, you know other professional groups have come out in favor of it. Currently, where the bill is, it is the House version of the bill is is with the House Judiciary Committee, and the the Senate version of the bill is now um, it, it has passed the Judiciary Committee stage, and it's now just waiting for a vote and to be taken up. It's I think on on general orders at this point. So um, so it's just a matter of I, I think when, um, and I think that it, it's a, a, a pretty you know I, I, I don't know if it's a clear shot because obviously we're talking about these issues. There are a lot of stuff, there's a lot of stuff going on and there are a lot of concerns that people have. Um, but I, I think it's on a trajectory that sees a lot of support and favor of this bill from a lot of, a lot of different areas. Okay. And I remember when, um, when, I don't know if it was when it was being considered by the judiciary committee and the Senate or when, but I, I read something about, uh, some lawmakers doing kind of a, Hey, what about me? saying, you know, well, this is so great for judges, you know, why not me? I'm a senator. People hate me. Why can't I have my information protected? Um, you know, is, is that still going on? Are people trying to add themselves into this bill at this point? Or are they at this point waiting for for perhaps a, a separate bill if it if it comes to that? I think at this point, you know, I'll, I'll just point out. So the, that comment you know, and I, I, that comment came from Senator Rand Paul in 2020 with the 2020 version of, of this bill, right? This is the 2021 version, and now we're in 2022. So they've had a whole year to kind of hash all of this out. I think at this stage, um, this is a bill that's going to be targeting the the judicial branch, which, you know, by the way, I, I, it's long been recognized that, that the judicial branch is simultaneously one of the strongest and weakest branches of government because it's beholden to both the legislature and the executive in certain things. So I think, you know, if the legislature wants a bill for themselves, then they should craft one and they should do that separately and they should be working to protect the interests of judges who cannot protect themselves. Got it. So I, I will just, I agree with you about the judiciary and kind of its placement within the free branches. I will say though, just, you know, I can't take off my, good government anti-corruption hat very easily. It's also the only branch that doesn't have any external oversight of any sort. <laughs> Judges regulate only you know, themselves when it comes to ethics. Uh, and that is not the most robust regulation uh, when you compare it to what happens in the other two branches. Now, that's historically because there hasn't been as much judicial corruption as there has been in the other two branches, where a lot more money is flowing around and being given out. Uh, and yet, you know, uh, there's still this this lack of of oversight and ethics protections that just make someone like me think twice about um, this sort of thing when you're protecting, like Matt was talking about, financial information that that might be relevant to a corruption inquiry. Um, but I digress. I want to ask Jacinia, um if this bill is signed into law. Um, will it solve the problem that we want it to solve? Is it going to be effective in terms of security of judges. And, and look, I know I'm not asking you to make any promises that we won't have another situation like uh, Daniel Anderol, but do we think it's it's targeting the right thing? And do we think that it's, it's as well-crafted as it can be to get us there? So I think with this bill, quite frankly, I think it Again, to what you to your point right now, there is no end all be all of trying to fully secure judges and their families from attacks and threats. I do think this bill is a step in the right direction. Again, in terms of the more practical 
issues that I think we can all agree on. So increasing training for judges and their families on how to protect their online presence, for example, right? Home security, beefing up the resources for the marshal's office. That's something that I think is very practical. And I think this is truly trying to address that. The second part of it that I personally think does help is in sort of protecting the PII, again, the personal identifying information. I do think it is trying to target that to the best of its ability because as many resources as we throw to the U.S. Marshal's Office, there's still going to be a finite amount of resources that they will be able to investigate and to send enough marshals to the homes of the judges. Um, There are examples of judges who, once they were under severe threats, they've had to send extra marshals to be camped out of their homes and to follow them at restaurants. So in the end, the physical will only have a certain amount of effect. Having the ability to try and restrict reasonably, because I think that that's the key to this, is to try to be as reasonable as possible with the restrictions of PII, I do think that this is trying to target that. Again, targeting things such as their social security numbers, their home addresses, which, again, with the caveats being made of being disclosable if it's for a public interest reason rather than a plaintiff that's disgruntled having access to things easily. So, you know, apart from from that, um, I do think it is trying to make a targeted effort. Um, Again, there are the physical security aspects they're trying to really focus on. There's also grants to local governments. Again, there's a limit to what the federal system can do. So they've given grants to state and local governments to try and also tackle it from that angle. So it is trying its best. And again, it will never be perfect because no bill will ever be perfect and fully secure everybody. But it's trying to its best to attack it from different angles to make sure that the resources work together in order to do the best it can to protect judges and their families. And, and, and if I can just add in too, at the, at the end, I, one of the other things that this bill does, which I think is very helpful, um, is it helps the United States comply with its international commitments. You know, the, the task force on the independence of lawyers and judges is built on the premise of these international principles. And one of which is the UN basic principles on the independence of the judiciary. Um, principle 11 calls for security for judges so that they can rule impartially so that they can do their jobs and perform their functions. And I think this bill goes a long way to, to helping us um, maintain that commitment to an impartial judiciary. So there are a lot of good reasons for the bill. Um, and, and it certainly does target those reasons in some ways. I'm wondering though, um, if it's if it's too much, if it includes too much, if it's too broad, if it doesn't include enough protections for um, the media under the First Amendment. So so let's talk about these potential problems with or concerns about the bill. Um, let me start with with you, Chris, um, because we were talking about what the covered information is. Um, so what what are the concerns there? I mean, do we does it does it contain too much? Do you think that that is is narrowly tailored to to you know bring out a constitutional term <laughs> for our legal audience? Um, is is particularly I'm I'm kind of concerned about the notion of this credit and financial information. Is is this well tailored or or should we should we uh, tamp it down a bit? So I, I think when you're when you're talking about and when you're really looking at the covered information categories, um, I, I would say, from my perspective, that it is well tailored. Um, there's, you know, a, a, a broader privacy movement, and I have to I have to give a shout out here to um, a partner at my firm, Olivera Medenica, who was 
a, a privacy guru, um, an encyclopedia on privacy knowledge. Um, and, and she really kind of helped discuss a lot of this with me and discuss the, the broader movement. But really, I think there's a, there's a principle of people, people want to be left alone and people have the right to be left alone in their own space. I, and I think that's an implied right that you're able to get into. I don't think that this is too broad because even if you look at concrete examples of, of media coverage, right, when we're talking about license plates, those are already blanked out in the media. When we're talking about uh, social security numbers, Everybody redacts social security numbers from everything. Give us the last four digit of your social is like a common, uh, you know, it's, it's a common thing. Um, so I, I don't think it's, it's too wrong. And we're also looking at immediate family members, people who are not judges. These are not necessarily people who want to be in the public sphere, who, who have any desire to be involved in this, right? This is talking about where these people work. So let's say the son of a judge works at a, a corporation or a company, um, that's protecting the interests of the child. I understand that there is a uh, there's this public interest that we might want to report in case that in, in, uh, impinges upon the judge's ethical obligations. But when you're talking about protecting the safety and security of somebody who's an immediate family member, somebody who's not necessarily signed up for this kind of life, um, those are overarching interests that I think need to be to be looked at. Um, and when we're talking about uh, privacy, uh, one of the things that I did learn from Oliveira was this concept of the fair information privacy principles, which are a series of principles that kind of weigh back and forth of, um, you know, when something is broad and when something isn't. And two of those factors that people would consider when any type of legislation involving privacy implications are, are, are considered involves accountability, security, and the individual participation. So I just want to point out that one thing that's part of this act is that a judge affirmatively has to say and, and put an application in and say, hey, I want my information withheld for whatever reason. Um, and that that's one of the things that's going on here. So, so Matt, I, I have to turn to you now um, because, you know, we, we've been hearing about privacy rights. You know, to me, though, I'm not sure that the judge's privacy rights are any more important than my privacy rights, and I don't get this protection. And I'm also not sure that they trump the First Amendment and the rights of uh, news gathering organizations to do their work. So, so talk to us about the the First Amendment rights of, of news organizations and whether those are violated by this bill or potentially violated. Or maybe I should just say, what are your concerns? I'm not sure. Do a whole analysis here, but but tell us your your concerns with the bill. Sure. So actually, while we were sitting here discussing this, I was reminded of uh, an exchange in the Pentagon Papers case when the New York Times was before the Supreme Court advocating in favor of publishing uh, a, a classified history of the U.S. Uh, war in Vietnam. And there is an exchange during that argument where Alexander Bickel, who was re representing the Times, as an exchange with one of the justices who's escaping me now. Uh, but the justice says it's some, essentially something like the, uh, the government is telling us that if these papers are published, that young men will die and you want us to let you publish them. And Alexander Bickel in a very memorable for first amendment nerds like me exchange, he says, um, I think quite rightly, he, he, he did not take the bait. He said I, something along the lines of, I think my more, I think my humanity would 
overwhelm my more abstract devotion to the First Amendment or something like that. And so I think it's worth recognizing, even as the, you know, the, the First Amendment person here, that these are indeed hard issues. And it is hard to draft a statute like this one, uh, because clearly, bad things have happened, very bad things have happened in the past. Um, but there, there are concerns. And as First Amendment lawyers, we, we, we generally don't like drawing new lines. There are very few categories of speech the court has traditionally held that are without uh, First Amendment protection. And uh, private facts, are not one of them. We as the news media, and I say we as the news media in the broadest sense, uh, have a First Amendment right to publish private newsworthy facts. Um, and all, a lot of news that I'm sure listeners read all of the time contains exactly that kind of information. But I do think there's, getting back to the statute, there's there are some, some breadth issues that I think are, are most concerning and then kind of elevate the more specific concerns that I referenced earlier. So as, as Chris said, the statute applies not just to the judges, but to any other familial relative of one of these at-risk individuals. Um, so it can be quite broad. And we are relying, if this information is confidential, let's say the employment status of a judge's uh, son or daughter, um, we are relying on the good graces of the judge to recuse himself or herself in such a case. And, you know, 15 years down the road, if, uh, you know, if this information is held secret, I mean, basically what the news media has to do rather than have, you know, um, access, easy access to this kind of information has to rely on a, perhaps a, a, a source, someone who works with the judge's son, if it's like a, or a daughter, if it's a high profile case to come forward and say, hey, there's something fishy going on here. So that's that's problematic. And I, I think that the the probably biggest and the most constitutionally susceptible point of the statute is this idea that um, the, the Congress can prohibit the news media from publishing certain information only if the news media can demonstrate uh, that it was in the public interest. I, I said that backwards, but the, the point being, there's an exception in the statute for material that is in the public interest. Congress says you can publish that information, but you can't publish anything else. But that kind of flips the script because traditionally uh, prohibitions on publication by the government, which we refer to as prior restraints, are the most unconstitutional form of uh, limitations on speech that the government can possibly come up with, right? Uh, this goes way, way back uh, to England and the 17th century, when in 1694, and this is, I'm sorry, this is going too much into depth, but when in 1694, Parliament finally said, you know what, we can't actually license people in order to allow them to print. And we've carried that tradition on through. The, the main rule of the First Amendment, kind of the central meaning, is that you cannot prohibit someone from speaking. And so this flips the script and it says, well, we're not going to prohibit you from speaking as long as you can demonstrate that 
what you're speaking about is in the public interest. So it takes the burden away from the party who's trying to stop the speech and presumably places it on the news media if challenged after printing some of this covered information to say to to show that this is in the public interest. And so that's a that's a real concern because it tries to do by statute uh, what the Constitution and the court's case law says uh, it cannot. So let me follow up on something just to make sure that that everyone's clear, because I think there's a point that I hadn't focused on earlier, which is it, it's not just about the publishing. Right. So like if if um, a journalist learned that the son of a judge worked for a company and that company was a litigant in front of the judge, you know, you could publish a story, presumably, even after this bill is passed, as long as you don't identify the company, I suppose. You could say, you know, we've learned that the employer of the judge's son is litigating this case and we're concerned it, it's corrupt and, you know, whatever you're going to say. But the problem may be, correct me if I'm wrong, that you're not even going to find out about it in the first place now because there will be no way to learn of that employment. Is that is that part of the point? Like if you can't search databases and learn that the son works for Apple then because that's been scrubbed, then you won't be able to learn about it in the first place and try to work around it in your reporting. Is that right? Or am I missing something? And if I'm missing something and you can learn about it, isn't that a good workaround that so, sort of solves your problem? In other words, you don't have to identify the place. You just have to say, here's the fact. He works at a place that's litigating. We're not going to identify the case because that would identify the place, but it's a corruption concern, blah, blah, blah. I was just going to jump in for one second, Jennifer, because I think one of the one of the key things is talking about where where they're actually going to look to remove data from. This isn't talking about removing data from all sites anywhere. And I think you know, this is really talking about cleaning data out of government agency sites so that it becomes a little bit more difficult. So I think you're kind of hit the nail on the head when it comes around to what the media is going to have to do. They're not going to be able to just go in and, and say, okay, you know, uh, government database on the judiciary, tell me everything about this judge anymore. They have to kind of go back to traditional notions of reporting and they have to kind of do some, do some boots on the ground stuff to figure out, okay, well, this judge has, you know, a, a kid who's working here. They can't just access it at their fingertips. The, the information is still going to be out there. It's just going to be a little bit more difficult for bad actors to be able to target a judge or their family members. But but if it's if it's covered information, is it reportable? Like if if the judge's if the employment of the judge's son is now a piece of covered information that has to be scrubbed, even if it does appear on Apple's website that the judge's son works there, then media still, I think, won't be able to report it, right? Unless they go through this rigmarole that, that Matt's talking about to prove in advance that it's in the public interest, because the law says nobody can publish this information unless it's in the public interest. Am I right about that, Matt? Yeah. So, I mean, I actually, I, I'm not sure. I think the law goes further than, than what Chris indicated, because there is a provision in the law that 
it, it says, and not to, uh, I'm sure everyone loves listening to a podcast that's someone reading statutory language at them, but it, it, it does say that no person, business, or association shall publicly post or publicly display on the internet covered information of an at-risk individual or immediately family, immediate family if the at-risk individual has made a written request to that person, business, association on down. So it seems to me that it has implications beyond it, but to your to your beyond just the, the government databases, but to your point, uh, Jennifer, I do think that the First Amendment is in is intended precisely to not force the media to have to force its readers to read between the lines with something like, for example, the conflict of interest that you can that you um, put out there in the hypothetical. That is, there the First Amendment is meant to protect the news media's right. To report that you know Judge Smith's presiding over a case where one of the adverse parties is Apple, and uh, his son works for Microsoft or whatever. Like that—that that is what the First Amendment is meant to do: protect that kind of re reporting. And I think it's important, you know, to to just kind of do the flip side of this, uh, or mention the flip side of this as well, which is. Reuters has had an excellent series on the lack of transparency in our courts. Uh, the series, I believe it was last year and maybe even the year before. Uh, but there is kind of a life and death element on the other side of this where you have judges who consistently seal information, right? Uh, and keep it from the public in cases about public safety, cases about product defects. So there's all sorts of, it's not just whether it's a conflict of interest, is, is the judge going to decide the case one way or another way, but it's it's about the entire transparency of the, the judicial process. And that's that's what concerns me. I mean, certainly if if asbestos dockets, you know, hadn't been sealed for, for years and years and years, there would have been a much earlier reckoning with uh, the the. the bad effects of asbestos, right? And is, is this particular statute about sealing? It's not, but I do think the conflict of interest point, I, I, I don't want to just focus on, well, it might mean that, you know, it's 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 a win or lose. It might actually affect all sorts of uh, stages of the judicial process. Well, and, and well, just to piggyback off of what Matt said to give a counterpoint, because I, I think he made two really good points um, while he was discussing this. I mean, this is all going back to this idea of balancing, right? Um, so, you know, with respect to the immediate family member of a judge, I mean, they, again, if they have to, if, if they're at risk, if they've got something going on, they have to make the request of their corporation or whatever to remove that information first. I mean, so that's, there's a balance there, you know, where you're asking the person to claim and assert their privacy, right, their right to be left alone, um, which is very important here. And same thing when we're talking about sealing records, I mean, there's always this presumption in favor of openness and transparency, but there are these balancing factors that have to be considered whenever you're rule make, ruling on a sealing issue or you're trying to, to withhold information from the public, right? There, the act, right of access for public is is very, very important. It's, it's sacrosanct, but there are always going to be balancing factors which have to be weighed. Um, so true. So true. I, I really do, though, 
look forward to seeing whether if this bill is enacted, what challenges we see and, and what the courts do with it, because um, there, there's some really interesting First Amendment issues here. Um, let me get back to you, Jasenia, And I, I want to raise another group other than the media that might have some First Amendment complaints here. And that's litigants, right? Like, let's say, you know, I'm an, an, an angry litigant and I want to go picket the judge's house and stand peacefully across the street with my sign. I'm not trying to bother anyone. I just want the judge to know he's corrupt. So, you know, if I can't find out where the judge lives, I'm unable to 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 do that First Amendment protected speech. Um, what, what's the deal with that? Or do you see a concern there with with the bill as it's currently written? Is, is that a violation or, or do you think that, that the bill adequately uh, skirts that problem? So I, I'm still very much on the camp of I think the, the bill is doing the best it can in terms of trying to protect the information available. In terms of, of limiting the rights of, of picketing and demonstrating, again, the information of where the judge works is still available. They can still demonstrate and picket within the judge's uh, workplace, which I think is is quite reasonable, to be quite frank. Um, in terms, you know, we've seen a couple of cases where People have disclosed, in recent cases, people have disclosed the judge's personal information. There was one recent case where a union president disclosed the chief justice's uh, information because he was having a argument with the judge over the anti-vax, over the vaccination requirements for city court employees. Um, and so he publicly disclosed both of her addresses on Facebook and encouraged their members to go and pick it. His main point was, please don't be violent. But again, sort of disclosing information to the wide sphere without having control of who will be using that information and how is the main concern of all of this. So I, I fully understand the concern of uh, limiting the ability of litigants or anybody else who disagrees with the decision. And there have been several very recent high-profile cases where many people on the left and the right have disagreed with. Um, Nothing is stopping them from demonstrating, particularly at the courthouses. Nothing is stopping them from publicly making statements through Twitter, through Instagram, through whatever caption and ability you have to do so. Um, but again, I think taking the extra step of going to someone's home, you might be very reasonable. The next person who agrees with you might not be as reasonable and you will have a tragedy, much in the same vein we've seen with Judge Salas or Judge Lefko or the many other judges who have been targeted by very severe death threats. So again, I think, again, to Chris's point, it's about a balancing act here. And I think that the um, bill does its best ability to try and have that balancing act in order to limit the, the threats and help the U.S. Marshal's Office to contain the threats to the best of its ability. All right. So we actually are starting to, to run out of time, but I do want to, before I get your all of your closing thoughts, I want to ask about whether we see more bills like this coming down the pike or are states doing the same thing? What's been the action on this sort of legislation um, in, in other places other than in Congress? Chris or Jasenia, one of you want to? Yeah, I mean, I'll, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say we did see it in New Jersey. The act was enacted. There's a state version of this that was enacted, I believe, in November, December 2020. So we are seeing states that are starting to do this. And I'll let Chris sort of jump in because he's going to, I think, make a little bit of a broader point of just privacy in general and what we're seeing. Right. And 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 really just the broad point that I was going to make is that we're seeing, uh, you know, in, in state legislatures, just a broader movement towards privacy and and kind of acknowledging that as a right of folks, especially because information is, and misinformation is so easily accessible now. 
Um, so we're looking at the natural pushback on that. And so I think what's going to happen is you're going to see more uh, privacy-related issues come up, more privacy-related litigation come up, more privacy-related legislation come up, not necessarily with just judges. I think what's going to happen, you know, New Jersey was very proactive and they passed their bill, you know, first and they had the New Jersey senators bring this bill into the into the Senate because it was so important. Um, I think you're going to see a lot more of the states trying to take this up because you have a, state court judges which deal with issues that are easily as messy, as complicated, as, you know, horrendous as the federal court, and sometimes even more so, you know, state court judges do things like family matters, which family family court in and of itself, there you have issues involving domestic violence and custody, and, and those are really heart-wrenching cases. You have, you know, kind of the nitty-gritty crime elements, and you so you have state court judges who are who are dealing with, you know, state crime issues, um, and, and their caseload is through the roof. So, um, so I think you're going to start seeing a, a trend where they're going to look to start trying to protect and, and allocate resources to the protection of folks who are really sitting in this role as kind of the, the you know, decision maker or perceived decision maker um, over somebody. You know, I think that the key threat to security, you get letters and you ruin my life. And the judge was like, well, I'm, I'm ruling on the law and doing my job. Um, that is crucial. The protection of a judge is crucial to the, um, being able to independently um, do their job and, and perform their function. All right, Matt. So um, I want to give you the the last word. Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts having listened to Chris and Jasenia? And, uh, you know, is there is there any saving this this sort of statute in your view under the First Amendment? Um, you know, what what can we do to both try to ensure the security of these judges and yet maintain the, the press's ability to, to do its job. As the first amendment lawyer, I always tend to be on the side of arguments that sound quite callous. <laughs> it's um, it's an unfortunate position to be in, but I, I will say as far as the statute goes specifically um, there, the, the, the back end of the statute does discuss concrete steps that the government can take, specifically additional funding for the United States Marshal Service and uh, home security for judges around the country that address the problems on the ground without uh, infringing on uh, whether it's the news media or private citizens, free speech rights relating to the judiciary, and more broadly, uh, our society's general trust that the judiciary is dealing with whatever the case may be, uh, dealing with it in a transparent, open, and fair way. And so a, a statute that addressed those on-the-ground concerns without touching speech, I think, would be the least constitutionally offensive and perhaps also one of the best ways to address what is a very real problem. All right. Well, thank you all so much. We are out of time. Um, I want to thank Jasenia and Matt and Chris for joining us today. And thanks to all of you out there for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced by Eli Cohen.